Hello, and thank you for joining me today. We're going to be breaking some taboos and diving into the complex world of sexual well-being in women. My guest is Dr. Kelly Kasperson, a urologist and sex expert who's passionate about helping women to live their best love lives. In this episode, we discuss why so many women feel broken, like something's wrong with them, when their sex drives have flatlined. As Dr. Kasperson explains, the issue is rarely due to a hormone imbalance. It's usually a much broader and deeper issue related to all the factors that shape our sex lives, from relationships to mainstream media to personal expectations. Dr. Kasperson's message is encouraging. We are not broken. We are not failures. We can reclaim and revive our sex lives by understanding our bodies and the many factors at play, and by making an empowering mindset shift. Before we dive in, here's a quick story about how this episode came to pass. I was at a trampoline park a few months ago in Bellingham, Washington with my kids when I thought I recognized Dr. Casperson from her Instagram page. I double-checked the photo, and it was definitely her. I had just finished reading her book, You Are Not Broken, and I loved it so much that I was excited to have the opportunity to pass along my praise in person. I know from experience how much this means. We ended up chatting for quite some time about all sorts of different nerdy topics, and I really walked away feeling like she was a kindred spirit. So it was only natural to invite Dr. Casperson on my show to share her expertise, and I'm thrilled that she accepted. I hope you appreciate her insights as much as I do. For more from Dr. Casperson, be sure to check out her podcast or her book, both entitled You Are Not Broken. Also, check out the previous episode of this show for our conversation about urology and all the things that can go wrong with human plumbing and what you can do about it. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome back, Dr. Kasperson. Thank you so much for continuing our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'd love to get started by hearing what inspired you as a urologist to write this book about women's sexual health and well-being, which is how I discovered you. Yay! I had a patient in my office So I was just like doing my job, doing my thing. And she was crying for her sexless marriage. And I was handing her the Kleenex and being like, I don't know what to do, which is astounding knowing that urologists are pretty good at getting penises hard. We basically invented Viagra. And I'm like, who's taking care of the people who are supposed to be sleeping with the people that we're giving Viagra to? Are the gynecologists taking care of these people? Maybe they know what we can do. And then I was talking to my gynecologist friends and they're like, we don't know. We're busy taking care of all the other things that we need to be taking care of. Oh, they didn't get an education either. Well, maybe nobody knows anything because I was told in residency that women were challenging and difficult. Well, maybe that's true or maybe that's not true. So I started going to the conferences and reading the books and reading the research. And I'm like, oh, no, we actually know a lot. It's just not percolating down. Like it's not percolating down to the doctors. It's not percolating down to mainstream consumers. And they're being taught not much about sex at all. And most of it's wrong. And Hollywood's wrong. And what we see portrayed in movies and music is wrong and all that stuff. So I realized I couldn't make as much of a difference if I just stayed quiet in my clinic, seeing people every 15 minutes for the rest of my life. It wasn't going to make a difference. So I started the podcast first called You Are Not Broken, and that is doing so incredibly well. But I was like, hey, I like to read. Some people like to consume their content in book form. Let's put it in book form. Oh, I didn't realize that because I found your book first, then your podcast. So of course, I assume that that's how it came to be. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The podcast is three years old, January 1st. All right. So the podcast is the older of the two babies. Okay. You felt there was this information void. 
And this was obviously a fairly common thing that was coming up in women coming to see you. Yeah. I mean, once you start asking about it, you're like, how many people came to see me with this problem before I cared? And the more reading I did, the books are basically broken down into two categories. The first category is very academic. These are like PhD people who don't know how to write so that anybody wants to read anything. It's like reading a dry book about sex. You didn't think it'd be possible, but there's plenty of them. That's one subset of books. And then the other subset of books is Eastern philosophy, yoni, cosmic bliss. Literally one of them says, breathe into your spleen. And even as a doctor, I have no idea how to do that. (laughs) And so like just not very approachable for the average busy, all American westernized woman. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted something that was fact-based, evidence-based, but approachable, funny, kind of like a sister who went to med school without all this super sexy, there'll be books with you know people in high heels. That's not the approach I want. So I basically created what I thought didn't exist. That's kind of my podcasting philosophy is that I want to create a podcast that I would like to listen to. So you're writing the book that you would like to have read. Yeah, 100%. And so what did you learn as you began to do a lot of research on the underlying causes of these women feeling broken because they didn't have sexual desire and have positive sexual relations in their life. I think it comes down to just lack of education because once you educate a woman on it and you are like, well, desire mismatch is common. And of course, putting something in your vagina doesn't always make you orgasm because like the clitoris is the majority of the orgasms. Like you just normalize stuff for them and you just start giving them education and being like, You know, the brain thinks novelty and spontaneous desire is over after about six to 12 months. It's okay that you don't spontaneously want to have sex when you've been with somebody for 10 years. Mm -hmm. You just normalize it. And then they're like, ah, you're not broken. You just don't know these things. That's fine. Let's learn them. And then you can decide to do something about them if you want to. Not knowing something and then adding on the extra layer of shame on top of it. Shame prevents us from finding the answers. And so it's like, we got to get rid of the shame, get some education. And then women are like, oh, okay. So I can figure out how to have an orgasm and figure out how to talk to my partner about sex. And I can figure out what my brain wants so that I can have desire or I can decide to have a great sex life and not worry about this whole desire thing. It's just empowering. You get to move. You get to move in the playground of your life so much easier. And on your podcast, one of the layers of the conversation that I found really resonated was the societal aspect of how we're raised and how we're raised to think about ourselves as objects of desire more than human beings who seek pleasure and how various aspects of societal setup and unfair division of labor in the home and all of these can contribute. And there's so much more to it than the human physiology. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think people, we like to dumb it down for the internet, but people are like, I just need my hormones balanced. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have spontaneous desire and amazing sex. And it's like, okay, you go girl. It's not that easy. It's not going to work that way. Sex is so complex. And I mean, that's what's so awesome about it. That's why I can do a podcast on it for three years and be like, yeah, I haven't even started covering all the stuff, let alone the stuff you have to repeat because you don't get it the first time. But it's like, think of the stereotypical perfect woman in our society. She's highly desirable and she doesn't desire. Mm -hmm. Think of what we call who enjoy sex, a lot of sex. Think of the names all of them. And then we're all feeling broken because we don't enjoy sex or want sex. We're like, well, yeah, because we were told it was bad your whole life. I guess what we were taught was that we weren't really supposed to crave it spontaneously, but we were supposed to be immediately responsive. That's right. What women are taught is that you just hang around until somebody wants to have sex with you and then you say yes to that. Yeah. And you're suddenly super turned on. Right. Because what do we call women who say no to their partner? They're prudish or they're shrewd all those other words. So it's like, we shame you no matter what. 
Yes. I taught my daughter the word lose-lose the other day, and I think this definitely applies <laughs> in that situation. So talking about all of these different layers, where does somebody begin to even tackle this? When you start to appreciate the different elements that are contributing and how it's so many different factors that feels like a lose-lose, how do you start? Well, I think it's okay to be pissed for a little bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and be like, oh, okay, so this isn't me. This isn't a me issue. This is like the water you're swimming in. How are you were raised, the religion that you were in, what your first boyfriend taught you because he knew more than you, which they don't. People who don't have our body parts don't know more than us, yet we give them all the power. And we say it's okay when they have an orgasm and we don't because well, I wouldn't want to complain about that not being great for me. I posted on Instagram today, it's like when one partner out of the two is having less pleasure, let's just not be surprised when that person doesn't want to have sex as much. Simple. Right. This is simple, simple stuff. So yeah, I think reading the book, knowing the anatomy, and the more we just own it and we get curious and it's okay to fail and it's okay to try and fail and it's okay to communicate about this and fail at communicating about this. What I think about the whole sexuality topic is like, this is the final frontier of personal growth, of like owning your body, owning the amazing stuff that your body does, owning when yes is a yes and when no is a no, owning your boundaries. Owning that I'm not going to think about my kid's school project tonight. I'm going to go have some sex and I'm going to be fully present and mindful about that. There's so much personal growth around the topic of sexuality that I'm like, why wouldn't you want to do work in this arena? Mm -hmm. For a lot of women, it's pretty novel to consider wanting that for yourself, not to be a good wife or something about societal expectations. Yeah, I'm at this point in doing this now that it blows my mind every day that a woman's like afraid. She's afraid to talk to somebody or she's afraid to ask for what she wants. And it's like, yeah, 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 that's society. That's the life you're living. Now that you see that, what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. You alluded earlier to the fact that fixing your hormones is not necessarily the answer, but there is a role to play, as you've discussed in the past, for vaginal estrogen. Do you want to talk a little bit about the actual medical interventions that can have a role to play here, but maybe not solve the whole thing? Yeah, vaginal estrogen is amazing. Perimenopause is when our estrogen starts to get lower. Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone all starts to get lower. And then by menopause and certainly five to 10 years after menopause, everything's zero, very, very low. We have less testosterone, less estrogen. We have less estrogen after menopause than men do. Let that sink in. Whoa. It's zero. What happens in the genital organs is estrogen is really important in the whole body, in collagen, blood flow, That's why we get more joint aches and pains. That's why we get more frozen shoulders. That's why we get more rotator cuff repairs when we have low hormones. So just fascinating stuff about our bodies. Our labia can disappear. Our clitoris can shrink. Our vaginal entrance can get dry. The vagina itself is kind of like an accordion. It's stretchy. It can become less stretchy. So sex can become very uncomfortable, painful, bleeding with sex, avoiding sex, low desire because sex hurts. And Mm -hmm. simple vaginal estrogen can restore those tissues, increasing the ability for arousal, orgasm, and just plain old comfort. Mm -hmm. And that's vaginal estrogen, just for readers who are new to this whole hormone thing. Then there's systemic hormones. Systemic is giving hormones to your whole body. There certainly is a role in testosterone with desire. And then if you ask the estrogen question, so systemic estrogen, does that help sex life? The answer is mixed. You're going to get plenty of studies that say no, estrogen is not really a driver of desire. But the two biggest reasons that women do or do not have sex in perimenopause and postmenopause is number one, availability of partner. So if there tends to not be somebody around to sleep with, she tends to not be sleeping with people. And then number two is perimenopause and menopause symptoms. 
So if she's not sleeping, if she's got hot flashes, if she's got aches and pains, if she's got moodiness, all of these menopause symptoms, she's going to have low desire and not have interest in having sex. You give her estrogen, you fix that, her sex life gets better. Right. Can we say hormones improve your sex life? Well, kind of inadvertently, yes. Right. But the good news is that there's plenty of people for whatever reason, they either choose or medically they can't have hormones post-menopause. They can have amazing sex lives. And the reason I got into analyzing this data is because of my listeners. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But once you hit menopause, there goes your sex life. And I'm like, is it true? Is that actually true? And so I went through the data and it's pretty mixed. It's not a yes or no question. In the same way that maybe improving your sleep could improve your sex life. It's not like a mechanistic link directly, but it is kind of a cause and effect. That's right. So what advice do you have for partners of women who are kind of waking up and wanting to own this more? Figure out how to talk about it. And what that means is be a good listener and really try to understand where they're coming from. I think we all assume that everybody else thinks like us. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, they want sex for a different reason. I always say stereotypically, there's two people in a house. One of them wants to be close in order to have sex and the other one wants sex in order to be close. And they're living with each other and they have no idea. Of like, what does sex even mean to your partner? It means that we're connected and we have a sexual relationship. And it's something we share that we don't share with anybody else, right? Like that's good information to know. Do you actually know that? And just like being curious and being loving. I see too much, again, stereotypical, but the guy will bring the woman into the doctor and be like, she doesn't want to have sex or something wrong. And it's like, well, who wants to have sex with this guy? <laughs> he thinks his partner's broken. And it's like, the lower desire person, there's nothing wrong with that person. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10. In desire mismatch, we think it's such a problem and it's always the woman's fault because she either has too much desire compared to what the man wants or she has too little desire compared to what the man wants. We use the man as the litmus test for what normal in the relationship should be. And once you point that out, you're like, oh, right, okay, that's mean. And then to realize mismatch in a relationship is completely normal. Do you guys agree on the same amount of anything? Me and my husband like different types of floss. Is somebody right? No, no, we just have different floss preferences. And so once you point that out of like, you might like pizza a lot and he's like, yeah, I'll do it every once in a while for you. Like, that's fun. But like every other night is not okay for me. Half of my job is just normalizing sex. Like sex is not unique or special. It's just like anything else in life. You got to navigate what's good for the relationship. And really, you know, listening and being intimacy is created in talking about sex more than sex. Yeah, opening those communication lines can work wonders. You learn a lot. Now, I know that you have kids a similar age to mine. Is it two girls, if I'm remembering correctly? Yeah, I have two girls. What are you doing as a parent to try to help buffer your kids from absorbing some of the messages that are out there in society? Yeah, well, the first thing you start with when they're young is just using the proper body parts. Mm. Right. Like we've really erased the vulva and the clitoris in our society. You know, I get kicked off of Instagram every once in a while for saying clitoris and vulva. It's a (laughs) violation of their terms and conditions. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So our body parts have been erased. We're not allowed to say them on social media, which is huge barriers for healthcare. Right. How can you talk to your doctor about what's wrong if you just call everything down there? Right. And so body parts, vulva from the beginning. So that your daughter can tell you, like, when her vulva itches, you know what's wrong. Mm -hmm. You can figure out how to help her. We don't have social media, so there's no social media in our house. I'm on it, but, like, we don't have TV. We do very few movies. Luckily, they're not exposed very much at all. Because it's all that subliminal messages. But even, let's take Disney princesses. Isn't it interesting that, like, she doesn't have a job? You know, Ariel. 
like, wow, isn't that interesting that they took away her voice and she had to get this guy to like her just by like kind of dancing and looking cute? It's a really <laughs> shitty movie. Yes. So, you know, just talking about it and, you know, from the experts will be like, isn't it curious? Isn't it curious that they're selling that car with a woman without a shirt on? Why do we think we do that? Mm-hmm. And just to start pointing out the ocean we live in of like, is that actually how the world works? Like we sell stuff based upon the desirability of women. We use sex everywhere, but we can't say vulva. Right. You know, you start bringing this up with your kids. of like, isn't it that interesting? Yeah. They don't at least have to be 40 before they figure it out. I mean, my mom did that for me and I didn't pay attention to her at all. She was like, Snoop Dogg is so misogynist and is, you know, <laughs> CI to CD when I was in high school. Mom, you don't know. Like, this stuff's cool. And now I'm like, my mom was totally right. Yeah. So my mom was pointing out misogyny. And like, I wasn't listening then, but now I'm like, I guess I am who I am and doing the work I'm doing because that stuff was pointed out to me really early. Mm-hmm. I had a funny conversation with my girls. My twins are seven, twin girls age seven, then my boy is 11. I mostly sheltered them from all that Disney stuff, but I've kind of been caving in a bit more recently. And at some point I let them watch a few episodes of Barbie because there's also this thing of like the thing that you forbid becomes so much more desirable and so on. So I was trying to strike that balance of you're not allowed to see what it is. And so it's so mysterious. And I let them watch a few Barbie episodes and they loved it. And then after several, I just couldn't handle it. And I told them we're not watching any more Barbie. And then they kept kind of asking for it and asking for it. And then one time they came up with this argument and I don't even remember saying this, but they said, mom, we know that it's not just important what you look like and what clothes you wear. We know that. So it's okay. Can we watch it now? (laughs) Anyways, I thought that was hilarious. So it's a constant struggle. I like that idea of just acknowledging, like, as you put it, the water that we swim in and saying, isn't it interesting how this ad is using this woman to make this product appear more attractive? And have you ever seen a man being used to market a product as more attractive? And so on. I'm definitely going to be employing that strategy. It's everywhere. And like, you know, what me and my sex educator friends, like, they'll just pick apart movies now. They'll be mm-hmm. like, oh my God, that sex scene was so fake. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they really all are, right? It's just all made up. Mm-hmm. For people that want to help address this, I mean, what should we be thinking about doing outside of our homes? I think it starts at home. It goes a really long way. Any thoughts on outside of the home? Yeah. I mean, paying attention to our biases, right? How we judge other women or how they choose to dress or how they choose to behave. Like we're so judgy. And it's like, I think the work starts from within. And only once you've done that work and you understand your biases, can you be like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to go support Planned Parenthood. Maybe I'm going to go say it's okay. You know, there was this big thing in Washington state about like what sex ed should be looking like in schools. Some people don't think that kids should be taught anything. Mm-hmm. Is our society doing so well with us not knowing anything that we should continue that? Or could we use a little bit of education? I don't think I'm the one to tell people how to get involved politically on that. But it's like, I think all change comes from within and that we can just go from there. Yeah. I'm involved in the parent education committee at my school and we did help raise funds to bring in a sex educator. And I was shocked at how much she shares and how early on. And most parents can wrap their heads around that and get comfortable with it, but there certainly are some who are not. But yeah, she was very much same page as you of of starting with just using the right words and demystifying your own body. Yeah. I had my sex educator. This is pre-pandemic. All the parents could like get together and we did it for our preschool, but it was for the parents and like how to talk to your preschoolers about when questions come up and the parents 
afterwards, they were like, I didn't want to come. I thought I wasn't going to learn anything. They're sharing their biases, basically. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, that was so amazing. I wish I had that. I wish my parents knew that so they could have helped me when I was just to see the difference in like 45 minutes of education. You get rid of fear. You give people tools. Empowered people are just, they're sexy. Yeah. And the kids, when they're younger, they're so blasé about it. So you have this window before they get squeamish to introduce all this stuff. Yeah, totally. And if you become or you portray yourself as somebody who they can come to with questions and you're not going to blow them off and you're not going to get squeamish yourself, like they'll know that you're a resource in the future instead of going to peers or their amateur boyfriend or the movies or porn. Mm -hmm. Nobody has the potential for being a better resource than the parents. Yeah. So we should probably start to wrap up here, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to share whatever you think are some important messages that a lot of listeners could benefit from that maybe we haven't touched on and maybe even just about being optimistic and getting started somehow. Yeah, I think that I see so many people who just have fear. And I always just get very curious about that of like, I think a lot of women, they're just so passive of like, well, you know, I don't have a great sex life, but like maybe someday I will. It's like going to come in on the breeze or something. (laughs) what is it called? It's called like Amazing Sex. There's an amazing book called Magnificent Sex. That's what it is. Mm. Basically, she did a bunch of research on all the people who raised their hands who said they have magnificent sex. Let's figure them out. And the summary of the book, you don't have to read it if you don't want, but the summary of the book is it's not a passive thing. It's like, well, maybe someday I'll just happen to eat more vegetables and exercise. I'll see. I don't know. That's not how you do it. You prioritize it. You try, you fail, you get curious, you learn some stuff. You figure out how to incorporate it in your life. And that's, I think, my message for women is if you think sitting back, being fearful and desire is just going to land on your lap, that's not how it works. They've researched the pros. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. the pros are like, I prioritize this. I put time and attention and education into this. I communicate about this. It's okay to fail. That's what gets you a good sex life. And there's no there there, by the way. It's the journey. That's the whole point. It's the person you become while you're becoming that like sexually confident person with agency about your sex life. It's like that spills over into your job, into your other relationships that aren't sexual. Mm -hmm. I know what I want. I'm going to go get it. And it's okay if I fail. That's a cool person. That's what it takes to have a fulfilling sex life in a world that's pretty sex negative. Mm -hmm. I love the analogy to exercise because I'm a big exercise advocate and I get so much from it. And I'm often trying to get other people into that positive cycle. Once you get in the cycle and you find the exercise that you enjoy, then you make time for it and you crave it and then it no longer becomes a chore. And I can very much see how that could apply here. Yeah, I use that analogy a lot with desire. I'm probably in the best shape of my life and I don't sit around wondering where my spontaneous desire for exercise is. Mm -hmm. How often do I actually, I'm like, oh God, I just really want to exercise right now. Not usually, but you prioritize it. And you know you're probably going to like it while you're doing it or afterwards. That's what desire is. It's like you don't always spontaneously desire. It doesn't mean you don't have exercise in your life. Same is true for vegetables, by the way. Spontaneous desire for vegetables, I don't have it. I have it. (laughs) Some people do. But like, am I happy about eating vegetables when I'm eating it and after? Yeah, that's responsive desire for vegetables. Sex is not special. Mm -hmm. I feel like my husband's like that with vegetables. I make a big salad and he's like, oh, thank you for doing this. I really enjoyed that. But he's never going to go make one. Yeah. He has responsive desire for vegetables. (laughs) That's awesome. This has been a really great conversation. And how can people find more of your work to continue the conversation? Yeah. So the podcast is You Are Not Broken. The website's Kelly Casperson MD and Instagram is Kelly Casperson MD. The book's You're Not Broken as well. 
All right. Well, thank you again for your time and sharing all you do, not just on this podcast, but on your own and your social media. And I think you've really touched a lot of people in very meaningful ways. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me on. Take care. 